Hello and welcome to episode 85 of Linux Downtime. I'm Joe. I'm Amalith. And I'm Jim. Good to talk to you both again. I often see this meme that developers should be forced to use low-end hardware like an old X200 ThinkPad or even worse than that, like a 386 or something ridiculous like that. Because they have these hugely powerful machines that normal people don't have. And so that got me wondering, what do you two think is the kind of hardware that developers should test their software on? Well, the answer is going to be different for different software. You're going to need to test further back in the past for, for example, a a general purpose instant messaging application than you would for the latest, I don't know, monitoring software or whatever. Just because there's going to be more expectation that, you know, more people are getting by on older and crappier hardware, you know, the further down the general purpose side of the ecosystem you go. As a general rule, I'd say that developers should be doing, A, they should be doing more of their own actual QA. I think that's at the root of a lot of issues that we see in the software ecosystem these days, particularly when you talk about commercial software, is there's this siloing of the developers live over here and the QA, you know, and the testing lives over there. And developers might be expected to write unit tests, but they're not really dog-fooding their own stuff all the time. And in that sense, like once we get to the point where we're saying, yes, we actually expect developers to really dog-food their software and like go through it and try to do some real QA of their own to see, you know, did I do a good job? Did I not do a good job? In general, I would say, you know, a, about a five-year-old machine that was decent spec when it was new is is probably the right performance level for that developer to be experiencing their software on. Now, you can make the argument that you say, oh, well, you don't need to do that. Just, you know, do that in the QA department. And again, that's better than nothing. But I, I do think that, I don't think that you can fix all of the issues with QA and dev too tightly siloed away from one another because the person who's actually the writing the code, like they need to care about it when they're writing the code, not just when they get some pushback that they then don't care about because like they haven't seen it. That's interesting. I hadn't considered that QA and development would be separate, but I suppose with major software that has a budget, it is totally separate. I was thinking more along the lines of your small projects that are just one person doing everything. Well, if it's one person doing everything, then that makes it both easier and harder. It's easier in the sense of like, okay, if you're the one person doing everything, then it really shouldn't be that hard for me to explain to you that you need to actually test your crap and see what it feels like to use it. And not only on your own machine, but on, you know, a fairly wide spectrum. And I think that if you are a one person shop, you should care very deeply about that. Because I mean, that's your baby. Raise it right. And in that case, you really should be looking at what it's like on a brand new machine, on, you know, the five-year-old machine that was pretty decent spec when it was new that I mentioned before. And ideally, you should be looking at on something that's like 10 years old and good enough to browse the the web, you know, one tab at a time. Like your X200, Amalith. Yeah, I was going to mention that at some point. My ThinkPad X200 is fantastic for like the normal development stuff that I do. For example, Go, its compiler is fantastic, really fast and lightweight. So I can develop pretty much any Go application locally on my X200 and have a perfectly pleasant experience. But when I open Slack in my browser or Trello or GitLab, 
the experience just goes to shit. <laughs> Especially if I try to do all those things at once. And I have to for work. I think it would probably help a lot in this particular endeavor if there were, and maybe there is and I just don't know about it, but um, I haven't come across any really easy to use, tailored for purpose, like, okay, here's a VM profile that will approximate a five-year-old decent machine, a 10-year-old barely hanging on machine that should be relatively easy to build, but nobody has built it yet. And like, you know, can you artificially cripple a process down, you know, in both compute and in storage? Well, yeah, you absolutely can, but it's not really very trivial to do that in a useful way that really targets a fairly accurate impression of what is a real piece of hardware like to use. And I think if it was really easy to just say, oh, well, part of our process is, you know, we just, we spin up the VM for high performance and for mid performance. And for dear God, you're still using that by a new machine. And we test it in all three and we're done. You can do it with core counts and amounts of RAM and storage, but... That doesn't get the job done, though, because, yeah, absolutely, mm. you can cut yourself down to two cores and only a couple of gigs of RAM or, you know, whatever. But <laughs> even if you cut it all the way down to one core, one core on a five gigahertz plus i9 is going to do one hell of a lot more work than all four cores on a 10-year-old quad-core Celeron. Mm. As you started talking about that, I started going through in my mind all the services I know of that let you simulate Android and iOS devices, but then you kept going and I realized, no, I don't know of anything like that. They all simulate the software side of things, mm -hmm. like iOS version X, Android version X. None of them actually simulate a hardware phone with the limitations that, that go along with it. The closest thing to, to what we're talking about that I know of that actually exists is not all that close, but uh, it's FreeBSD's dummy net. FreeBSD has a pretty neat pipeline for simulating all kinds of network environments. You can add latency, you can add jitter, you can you know define what throughput it's capable of. Basically, every way you could have a sucky network in real life, it's pretty easy with dummy net to simulate exactly that on a solid network. We need kind of that, but for the whole computer. In some cases, you know, the network approach also really needs to be looked at when you're talking about software that interacts over network and, you know, okay, like, for example, me, if I was developing an application that had a front and a back end at my house, well, I've got wire backhaul Wi-Fi access points in every other room all the way throughout my house. I could just say, oh, well, you know, it works fine on Wi-Fi and it might be true at my house, but absolutely not true in a more typical American household that's nearly as large or as large as mine and is getting by on absolutely nothing but whatever piece of crap the ISP gave them for a single router that's living in the corner of the house where the lazy cable installers drilled through when they first set it up. <laughs> yeah. Before anyone writes in to tell us the name of it, what I was thinking of is browser stack and they do provide real devices for you to run stuff on. But it's just mobile devices, nothing for desktop or laptop or, or anything. And there's something in the Apple world, like it's, it's an official tool. I can't remember what it's called now, but you can emulate various iPhones and iPads and stuff. I think it also depends on who the target audience demographic is. If you're targeting regular people, then you absolutely need to test some of the lowest spec devices. If you're targeting developers, 
maybe those specs kind of increase a little bit because normally devs have more powerful machines. If you're targeting old people, flip phones are what you're targeting. (laughs) There are no apps. (laughs) That brings up a good point, actually. Something that I've noticed as someone who needs glasses but refuses, accessibility is becoming something that is kind of important to me. Like, what does it look like when I make the text huge? And often it just breaks stuff. It just doesn't work properly. And, you know, these devs have got these super high resolution monitors, but there's still a bunch of folks out there with, you know, the 13 whatever by 768 laptop. And a lot of stuff just doesn't really work very well on a resolution that low. Well, and also, you know, the devs have those super high resolution monitors. They also very frequently are bloody enormous monitors. Mm. If you give a typical dev any control over their own setup, as opposed to being like, this is your workstation, like it or not, they're going to try to make it look as little like a normal computer as humanly possible. You want the flashiest, weirdest, biggest, most obnoxious gadgets and light up hoo-ha and clickety-clackety mechanical keyboard and, you know, mice with 30 buttons on them and, you know, multiple axes. They're not trying to say, okay, this is a normal person's computer that I'm going to sit here and do the work on. You know, it's like, I am Spaceman Spiff and I'm going to conquer the galaxy from my battle station. Might you be stereotyping slightly there? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what your battle station looks like, Emily? (laughs) Mine is pretty conservative comparatively, but if a dev had a choice of I can have any hardware under the sun, it would be that. It would be the biggest, beefiest, most over-the-top anything. But those things cost money. If you're a solo indie developer, maybe can't afford that kind of stuff. Or you can because, you know, it's your all-in-one rig and it's also your gaming rig and you have Mm -hmm. all the super high dollar whatever and, like, within this box is your entire life. That's a model that I see out of a lot of one-person shops and, and indie devs is you still got a hideously expensive machine because, like, that is the machine they pour everything they absolutely can into. So it's still not going to match up very well with the five-year-old Dell Inspiron laptop that uh, somebody got their kid for high school. But they have to use your software on that laptop. And it's not a terrible laptop. It's just, you know, about as far away from a battle station with last year's i9 and, you know, a 36-inch curved 4K monitor as you can possibly get. Okay, this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. The holidays are right around the corner, and HelloFresh can take the stress out of dinner by delivering everything you need to cook up tasty meals right to your door, saving you tons of time. The most wonderful time of the year is also the most delicious. Enjoy every bite of the holiday season with HelloFresh. Choose from over 45 weekly recipes and over 100 curated picks from HelloFresh Market. Amalith tried HelloFresh and said the kits came with exactly the right ingredients in the right amounts and saved his roommate and him from having to spend hours shopping around at the store. The dishes were all really simple to prepare and cook, and they came out tasting great. So support the show and go to hellofresh.com slash LDT free and use code LDT free for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash LDT free 
with code LDT free. Quick bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to linuxdowntime.com support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at linuxdowntime.com. What about on the server side of things then? If we move away from Electron apps and the desktop and all that, is it really the same situation with CLI apps on servers? I find that it typically isn't. There are several reasons for that. I think one reason for that is that most people who are developing CLI apps these days are maybe a little more aware of the multiple environments thing because they're likely going to be running it remotely in a lot of environments, and some of those will be pretty minimal, like, you know, $5 Linodes. So it's a lot more visible and easier to recognize, hey, this needs to be more efficient. Also, of course, you know, going with a command line interface, you've whacked off a solid 85% of the ways to make your app perform like garbage because there is none of the graphical whiz-bang whatever, and you have to screw up a lot more enthusiastically to use way too much RAM or any number of sins in a command line only app. It's just, you know, there you're looking more at uh, your more typical issue with somebody developing a command line app is like, okay, if this app might potentially have to work with a very large volume of data, was the dev bright enough to create it as a streaming app rather than a read all the data in and then process it and then write it back out type app? It's just, it's a different set of problems in my opinion. And I do think people developing like open source server side software should get the cheapest VPS at preferred provider and see how their application performs in a trimmed down environment. I know some people don't, and I suffer from that. <laughs> what do you sometimes just go for the like $20, $40 rigs then? Yeah. Sometimes I have the biggest stuff. Sometimes I have the smallest stuff. I used to be a lot more likely to just throw extra money at, you know, like a, a Linode or a DigitalOcean VM, you know, just cause. But these days I, I tend to be more minimalist. I'm like, if I can't get it done on a $5 VM, then I need to figure out what I did wrong. Mm -hmm. Because you can handle a surprising amount of scale with a $5 VM if you know what you're doing. And if you don't know what you're doing, then, well, you know, it's a lot more fun to just learn what to do rather than just keep hemorrhaging money to somebody. Is this your sysadmin side coming out, though, Jim, rather than your dev side? That's not an entirely unfair statement, but I think a more accurate statement might be this is my person who actually writes the checks side. Yeah. The modern business model, again, you tend to have, you know, very tall, very tightly defined silos and the money side of the silo doesn't really talk much to the dev side or the op side. It's just like we have a budget and this is the budget and then you get to use that budget and the whole thing just gets, it gets a lot sloppier. It's a lot easier to argue, well, I need more budget to somebody else when you don't actually care if you're spending too much because it's not your money mm. and vice versa. You know, it's a lot easier to say you need to spend less when you're not the one doing the work and you just have a gut feeling like, screw you, I don't want to keep giving you money. <laughs> I also think devs should be their own sysadmins sometimes. They should understand the constraints of their server-side software that they're, they're building. And the environment, they should be conscious of all the variables at play, the security slash threat model, all that kind of stuff. I think that would be lovely. And I think everyone should strive for that ideal, but I think it's a little unrealistic. Mm-hmm. 
I've been in this business for a disturbingly long time now, and I have never once met anyone who is equally good at development and system administration. From the outside, they look like very similar jobs, but from the inside, they require very different mindsets. And it's hard to find somebody who's even reasonably good at both. Almost everyone is, whatever degree they are at, you know, the good one, whether they're primarily a sysadmin or primarily a developer, they are like a tenth as good at the other one. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's just that nobody's asked them to. I think that the mindset that is capable of being good at both is really rare. What about where it's kind of both? It's an application that is server-side, but it has a web GUI. What kind of hardware should that be tested on? Well, now you need to test the gamut on both ends, on the front end and the back end. The good news is that's usually pretty easy to do because modern software development, you know, again, with there's a general expectation that you should be coding unit tests and, and you know, doing at least some basic automated testing. And that's usually really easy to do against a back end compared to a front end. And there's already going to be a strong desire to decouple that back end testing from the front end, because, you know, I mean, you don't want to build in your unit tests like literally to the front end client, just lurk in there in the JavaScript for any random user to find and abuse. So we're basically looking at the same thing. You figure out what your range is. You know, again, I would say ideally, it's always a three part. You know, it's like last year's i9, you know, a five year old i5, let's say, and a 10 year old Celeron. That's what you test your front end against. And on the back end, you know, you test on the equivalent of the $5 Linode. You know, maybe that's a local VM, but yeah, you, you try to target the equivalent of a $5 Linode or, or DigitalOcean droplet. Whether you test it anything beyond that just kind of depends on how hard you're trying to target bigger architecture. But in general, if it runs well on the crappy stuff, it's not like you'll have done something wrong on the bigger stuff. Depending on how big you want to scale it, I suppose. Yeah, but that's more of a scale-out problem than a scale-up problem. You can write code for a Celeron that will perform completely efficiently on an i9. Matter of fact, you kind of have to work to do anything differently that way. But the big difference is, in, and I have encountered this in anger many times, is the difference between, oh, well, the back end worked fine on my laptop, said the dev, versus how the back end worked on you know, a scaled-out cluster in production. You're talking a scale of relatively low-end VMs. No, I'm talking about the difference between running a very small, tightly focused workload on a small data set on an individual developer's single machine running the back end versus actually having to handle web scale on a cluster of machines that all have to divvy up the load. And, you know, you can have issues with handing off pieces of the workload from, you know, one machine to another in the cluster, or you can have issues with how you divide the workload to begin with. Are you round robining? Are you doing a random distribution? Are you actually detecting load on individual machines and trying to do load aware balancing? Does it all work? Are there bugs? Are there things that you can exploit? That's really where it gets nasty moving from worked fine on my laptop to look, asshole, this needs to actually work in production with the actual production workload and it working right on your laptop doesn't help me a single tiny bit that you said that. It does not fix the actual problem a single tiny bit that when you worked with a thousand rows in the database on your laptop, it worked fine versus the, you know, hundred million rows we need to work with on the web farm. Just because it runs doesn't mean it functions. 
And again, just because it ran well at that scale doesn't, but, but we're talking scale out, mm-hmm. not scale up. Nobody's like, oh, well, this database ran fine on my 10-year-old Celeron, but God, it's just terrible on my i9. That, mm, that's not how that works. However, you can find even that with the exact same workload, you may have this idea that like, oh, well, you know, the next thing that I need to do with my workload that I have right now that's running okay, but I think I can do better is to scale out. And you discover that moving from one machine to four identical machines actually decreased your performance because it turns out you weren't actually designed very well to scale out. You don't know what you're doing, or maybe it used to scale out well, but a developer introduced a regression because again, they tested it on their laptop and it worked fine on their laptop and they broke (laughs) the scale out, but they didn't know because it worked fine on my laptop. So the meme kind of goes both ways in a sense. Well, no, the meme really only goes one way. and, And that one way is you need to test your project in the environment in which it will be used. Mm. That's it. That's the whole thing. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until then, I've been Joe. I've been Amalith. And I am the once in future Jim. See you later. <laughs>